Good morning. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Cheryl Hemp, and I am a member of this congregation. And I want to extend a special welcome to everyone joining us here and online this morning. Since 1870, UU has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. We are currently worshiping both in person and online, so be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter and follow us on Facebook or Instagram for updates. And I have a couple of announcements to highlight today. And this is very exciting. Um, for the first time in a couple years, next Sunday, April 3rd, marks the return of our first Sunday potluck, which is a, a very important tradition here at this church. So bring a dish to share and join us after the service for food, fellowship, and fun. The April potluck will be hosted by the UU Wausau Board of Trustees. And UU Wausau is hosting a Red Cross blood drive on Thursday, April 7th from noon to five. And they're still in need of volunteers to help check in donors. So please check the yellow pages in your order of service for information on how to donate and how to sign up to help out. And with that, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the church's chalice writing, and you will find the words printed in the order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. And now if you would stand as able for the opening hymn number six, just as long as I have breath. Again, number six, just as long as I have breath.
would remain standing and join me in the church's affirmation, you'll find the words in the order of worship. Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve human need, to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other in our doxology. When Brian told me this morning about today's theme, I immediately thought about a hamster we once had named Rue. I think most of us have seen a hamster or a chipmunk with their cheeks filled with food, much like the one on the screen. And Rue could and would put a whole carrot in her cheek pockets. She would frequently empty out her food bowl and we clean out our cage, we find a whole cache of it in her hidey house. If you know anything about animals like hamsters, this behavior is to ensure that they have enough food to survive. But being a very well-fed hamster pet also meant Rue wouldn't be able to sleep in her house because she'd cram so much stuff in there, there wouldn't be room for her. <laughs> so this morning, as we explore cleaning out the clutter, I want to share with you a story about another hamster for whom the storage instinct was a bit problematic. Any likeness to other hamsters, past, present, or future, is purely coincidental. Once upon a time, in a land not too far from here, lived a hamster named Rue. Rue was not a pet like our hamsters are now. No, Rue lived in the wild, and she had her own home deep in the ground where she could keep all her goodies. And Rue loved to find goodies. Whenever she came across a bit of string or a screw or a paper clip, she would tuck it into her cheeks and bring it back home. We might call these things junk. She called them lost things. To Rue, all things needed a home, and who knows, maybe she could use it someday. <laughs> it wasn't just lost things that Rue collected, though. No, it was all things. Rue would bring home gobs of food, way more than she could ever need, and Rue loved a good rummage sale. Remember, she isn't an ordinary hamster. One time at the church rummage sale, she found a perfectly good banjo. Rue couldn't play the banjo, but it was good. And at the furniture shop, she found a pink velvet couch. Now, I'm not sure a hamster needs a velvet couch, but Rue certainly wanted it. And this is how Rue spent her days collecting and filling up her home with things. Books, toys, food, a kayak, knickknacks, food, games, more lost things, a lamp, decorative pillows, and more food. But one day when Rue was heading out to go gathering, she came across a group of animals, and she couldn't help but overhear that they were trying to get a kickball game going, but they didn't have a ball to use. And before she could stop herself, Rue blurted out, I have a ball you can use. Rue had spent so much time working on collecting things, she had never played kickball or even really had time for friends. 
but there was something about playing a game with others that sounded so fascinating that she couldn't help herself. The other animals were a bit surprised by her offer at first. She had never really seemed interested in them before, but after a moment, they thanked her and invited her to join them. They waited outside while Rue tossed her house looking for the red ball. She had collected it the week before, but couldn't find it. It wasn't in with her toys. It wasn't with the games. It wasn't under the couch. The animals waited for five minutes, and then 10. It wasn't with the banjo or her snacks. And then after 15 minutes, the bunny spotted a pine cone and shouted down to Rue that they had found something. But with all the commotion of rooting through her belongings, she didn't hear them. So they left to go play their game. After 20 long minutes of searching, Rue found the red ball. She went sprinting up, yelling that she had found it. But when she got to the top, she saw the other animals off in the field playing their game. Rue's heart sank. Fine, she declared. If they don't want to play with my ball, then I will play all by myself. And they don't have to sit on my couch or hear my banjo or share in any of my snacks or try my kayak. Hmm. As Rue listed all the things she wasn't going to share, she began to realize she had collected a lot of stuff. And that's exactly what it was. Stuff. She hadn't used very much of it. In fact, when she was digging out the ball, she uncovered a bunch of things she had even forgotten about. Bits of wire, a garden gnome. She didn't even like some of the food she had gathered, but it, and it made her feel kind of sluggish. But she kept it and kept bringing it home. She began questioning why she had so many things. Even if she made friends, they wouldn't be able to come over. There was barely enough room for her in the house. The pink velvet sofa, while it looked super awesome, caused static electricity with Rue's fur. It was way too warm in the summer and took up a ton of room. And for all the lost things she collected, she had never found a use for any of them. Rue realized that despite her home being full, her life was, well, empty. Rue made the choice right then and there to remove anything from her life that didn't help her feel happy and fulfilled. So she donated the sofa, and she donated the toys and games. She recycled and composted lost things. She removed all the clutter, all except for the food, a red ball, and the banjo. With those things, she invited the other animals over to play a game of kickball and then to her home for music and snacks. And Rue's life, despite her home being clutter-free, felt much fuller. And that is our story for today. Ari is still on spring break today, so I'm going to invite you to join all of us here and those joining from home with May Peace Surround You. The words are printed in your order of service. Let there be an offering to sustain and strengthen this place, which is, which is sacred to so many of us, a community of memory and of hope, for we are now the keepers of the dream. The mission and ministry of UU Wausau is made possible by the generous support of its friends and members. Rather than pass a plate at this time, we've placed an offering basket 
in the back of the sanctuary for you to drop a gift in. You can also stop by our website, uuwasa.org, to make a one-time or reoccurring gift with your credit or debit card. Thank you for your support. I'd like to invite everyone to join me in the spirit of prayer and meditation. First thing, I invite you to center your body. Start by footing, putting your feet flat and firm on the ground. If it is your custom to pray or meditate with your eyes closed, I invite you to close them now. Let's start with a body scan. Feel the air on the top of your head. Try and relax your jaw. The weight on your shoulders, try to shift it down your back. Take a breath. Feel your heart. Let us pray. O love everlasting, O renewing breath, living life. Prophets of every age have pointed away in the wilderness, giving us the courage to fill the desert spaces in our lives with cool running rivers. To save the lost, heal the sick and restore the fortunes of those who have nothing. And still everywhere we look, there are people in need, people whose lives are broken by poverty, disease, and violence. And once again, we hold in tender compassion the people of Ukraine. We pray for those who are living in fear of their lives, for those who have been forced to leave their homes and to flee the conflict. And we pray for the countries seeking to welcome and support them. We pray, too, for soldiers who bear arms on behalf of their nation, for their families, for their hearts, for their ability to act with care and compassion. And so, in our weakness, we cry out. May those who go out weeping come home with shouts of joy. Dear congregation, I invite you to call into your mind all the joys and sorrows in your lives. Let us meditate on them in silence together now. 
Amen. Please stay seated for prayer hymn number 123, Spirit of Life. Reading this morning is a poem entitled Pray for Peace by the poet Ellen Bass. And the poet writes, Pray to whomever you kneel down to. Jesus nailed to his wooden or plastic cross, his suffering face bent to kiss you. Buddha still under the bow tree in scorching heat. Adonai, Allah, raise your arms to Mary that she may lay her palm on our brows to Shekinah, queen of heaven and earth, to Inanna and her stripped descent. Then pray to the bus driver who takes you to work. And then on the bus, pray for everyone riding that bus, for everyone riding buses all over the world, drop some silver and pray. 
waiting in line for the movies, for the ATM, for your latte and croissant, offer your plea. Make your eating and drinking a supplication. Make your slicing carrots a holy act. Every translucent layer of the onion a deeper prayer. To hawk or wolf for the great whale, pray. Bow down to terriers and shepherds and Siamese cats, fields of artichokes and elegant strawberries. Make the brushing of your hair a prayer. Every strand its own voice singing in the choir on your head. As you wash your face, the water slipping through your fingers, a prayer. Water, softest thing on earth. Gentleness that wears away rock. Making love, of course, is already a prayer. Skin and open mouths worshiping that skin, the fragile cases we have been poured into. If you're hungry, pray. If you're tired, pray to Gandhi and Dorothy Day, Shakespeare, Sappho, Sojourner Truth. When you walk to your car, to the mailbox, to the video store, let each step be a prayer that we all keep our legs, that we do not blow anyone else's legs off or crush their skulls. And if you're riding on a bicycle or a skateboard in a wheelchair, each revolution of the wheels of prayer as the earth revolves, less harm, less harm, less harm. And as you work typing with a new manicure, a tiny little palm tree painted on one pearlescent nail, or delivering soda, or drawing good blood into rubber-capped vials, twirling pizzas. With each breath in, take in the faith of those who have believed when belief seemed foolish, but yet persevered. With each breath out, cherish. Pull weeds for peace. Turn over in your sleep for peace. Feed the birds each shiny seed that spills onto the earth another second of peace. Wash your dishes. Call your mother. Drink wine. Shovel leaves or snow or trash from your sidewalk. Make a path. Fold a photo of a dead child around your visa card. Scoop your holy water from the gutter. Gnaw your crust. Mumble along like a crazy person, stumbling your prayer through the streets. There it ends our reading.
My sermon text this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah in the 55th chapter, beginning in the first verse. Listen to the prophet's words. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and why spend your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and a commander to the peoples. And surely you will not summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you. Because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, God has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while the Lord may be found, and call on him while he is near. And let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and let them have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon for your thoughts are not my thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts, not your thoughts. So, a few summers ago, after three apartments, three college degrees between us, three states, a child, a house-sitting gig, a home of our own, and a dog, Sarah and I decided to go through the boxes in our basement to sift through the junk that we had been carrying around for a decade. Now, there were boxes down in our basement that filled with things that we had completely forgotten about, things like my childhood leather belt with my name on the backside, and then the big, fat belt buckle on the front that Missouri country boys like me get whenever we start school. I even had a digital alarm clock from the fifth grade that my mom gave me in Christmas that I have this bizarre sentimental attachment to that I just cannot get rid of. And in my basement, believe it or not, there was a Tupperware filled, and when I say the word filled, I mean bordering on the point of explosion, filled with every beanie baby known to humankind. We have a Tupperware filled with Beanie Babies because my wife cannot bear the thought of parting with these vile creatures that haunt my basement as we speak. And so among our mountains of junk was an entire box filled with parenting books. So whenever Sarah and I, we learned that we would be parents, we would buy just about every single parenting book that we could get our hands on. If we saw one, we bought it. We'd check them out from the library. We'd put them on our Amazon wish list. We would borrow them from our friends and family. And we would actually read these books cover to cover, and we would underline all these specific parts, and then we would come together and we would talk about what we had learned. And we even went to parenting classes, and we game-planned, and we committed. I said, Sarah, I want to be a better father than my father. And she said, oh, Brian, I want to be a better mother than my mother. Basically, what we did is we researched everything we could about being a parent. The truth be told, I cannot remember a single thing that I read that entire time. I wish I could tell you that I was exaggerating, but I am not exaggerating. Sure, I remember a few tips and tricks that my parents and friends told me, but all those approaches and all those to-dos that we had absorbed, they vanished 
the instant our little girl came into the world. Now, I'm not trying to say that parenting books are useless. For me, I actually think that they served what may have been their true purpose, to relieve our anxiety. Now, I had mistakenly thought that if I filled my mind with all the latest scientific data on how children develop, if I learned how different cultures parent, that I would be able to research my way into knowing what to do if. But as anyone who has spent more than three minutes around a child knows that even if you have an expert understanding of child development, even if you have an encyclopedic knowledge of a baby's behavior and a PhD in developmental psychology combined, none of that can fully prepare us for the responsibility and the mystery a child represents. The New Yorker parodied this reality in a satirical report entitled, and I quote, a recent study has shown that if American parents read one more long-form think piece about parenting, they will go blanking, ape blank, end quote. <laughs> there aren't blanks on either side of the ape, by the way. The way we think about parenting isn't unique to just that. I've seen it, and I expect you've seen it too. People who think they can just sort of project order onto the unruliness of the world in a vain attempt to ease our troubled minds. There's sort of a pattern to this kind of living, and in my mind, it goes something like this. Identify the issue, research, implement, routinize, evangelize, and annoy everyone you know in the process. And we think like this about a lot of things. We think like this about the food we eat, the exercise we do, the technology we use. We think that if we eat a certain way, exercise a certain way, think a certain way, email at a certain time of day, that we can control our lives. Now, I'm not trying to tell you that I think developing self-control and good habits are pointless. That couldn't be farther from what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is the impulse in all of us that makes us think that we have to control our lives just so and constantly improve and perfect ourselves in order to be enough. The strange thing about control is that what we seek to control often ends up controlling us. If ever you've been to a recovery meeting, you almost assuredly have heard someone point out to you, you cannot solve a problem with the same mindset used to create it. The thing is, there is no single definitive right way to parent or eat or use your phone and computer. And that's because life isn't a problem to solve and what works for us today might not work for us tomorrow. Further, the longing to control and to convince ourselves of our rightness and our endless desire to be thought well of, this often turns into glorified scorekeeping. So on this topic of self-absorption, T.S. Eliot, who was the grandson of a Unitarian minister, he wrote this somewhere, quote, half the harm that is done in the world is due to people who want to feel important. Now, they don't mean to do harm, but the harm doesn't interest them, or they do not see it, or they justify it because they are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. So Eliot's warning is as true as it is timeless. Anxiety and fear and our attempts to control it with busyness, with plans, with fads, and with better abs, it ends us narrowing the light of existence into the tiny sliver of life we occupy in our very fragile and limited bodies. 
What Eliot knew is that far too often the search for the right technique to this or that aspect of life, it ends up creating anxiety. And the anxiety we create to be the perfect parent, a perfect consumer, a perfect liberal or conservative Protestant, a perfect Unitarian Universalist minister who says God roughly 44.28% of the time, or to parent a perfect child, it always ends up being transmitted onto our child our stepchildren, our marriages, our second marriages, our friendships, our churches, and our city halls. The perfect exercise plan and the anxiety perform it turns into a to-do list. The anxiety to eat perfectly turns the simple pleasures of food into a problem to be solved. Of course, everyone wants a meaningful life, and Socrates is absolutely right when he said that the unexamined life is not worth living. But I'd like to add, and I think it's equally true, that the over-examined life is not worth living either. So in one of Calvin and Hobbes, do you all remember Calvin and Hobbes, the, the comic book? Okay, so in one of Calvin and Hobbes comic strips, it shows the young, mischievous Calvin as a boy. He's standing in front of his parents, his mom and his dad, who are relaxing on the couch together. His mom is knitting, his father is reading the evening paper. And Calvin looks up at his mom and his dad and he asks, what assurances do I have that your parenting isn't screwing me up? <laughs> the joke, of course, is that there aren't any assurances. All of us learn to walk by falling. Every single one of us learn to love by falling. And all of us learn what truly matters by having things taken away. So today is the fourth Sunday in Lent the season in which the faithful are invited to meditate on sin and repentance. Now, I will freely admit that sin is sort of like a four-letter word in a lot of liberal Protestant circles. We like to think that people are basically good, but what happens when we think this? We run into those hard, cold facts of jealousy, murder, human trafficking, hatred, greed, theft, and all those other little minor sins that live in our hearts, like arrogance and impatience. And too often, sin is portrayed as something like religious rule-breaking. But this definition invites the kind of thinking that we've already been talking about, that we can teach ourselves enough, or read the right books, or say the right things, and doing so earns us favor in the eyes of the people we want to like us, or perhaps even favor in the eyes of the divine. Now, I'm mindful here in this moment of the old saying about our spiritual ancestors that goes something like this. The universalists, our spiritual ancestors here, the universalists believe that God is too good to damn anyone, while those pesky Unitarians believe that they are too good to be damned. <laughs> but sin is not about being naughty. Sin, in Francis Spoofer's words, quote, is better understood as the human propensity to mess things up. This is exactly what Isaiah was getting at in our reading when he asks, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Here the prophet is getting at the terrifying truth that even if we're able to fill our lives with every material comfort, even if we're able to satisfy our every desire, even if we're able to climb the mountain of success, even if we end up the cool kid or the cool mom or Wausau's hippest resident, most of us, when we get up there, discover within there is a longing for something more. But the prophet here, he doesn't leave us in shame and doubt. 
Isaiah and the prophets of our faith whose words have been spoken from this pulpit since 1870, they don't offer us a handout, but a hand up. Listen closely to Isaiah's words. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, as the heavens are higher than the earth, and so my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Before I move on, I'll make a confession. Whenever I read words like this, my mind goes instantly to pain. After all, one of the most enduring arguments against faith is the fact of pain. And I've often looked out at this congregation over the years, and I've felt like Reinhold Niebuhr said in one of his journal entries when he pastored a church in Detroit. And what he said was this. He said that every single Sunday I felt like a naive young fool preaching to people who have known pain and sorrow and love and success greater than anything he ever had and perhaps ever would. And I think what he was getting at was the experience most, if not all of us, have when we wake up each day afraid on some level because life is scary. 2,500 years ago, the Buddha saw this and created an entire philosophy centered on four truths. And every single one of those truths have to do with suffering and our response to it. But we hardly need a religion to remind us of suffering. You see, yesterday's headlines did that. This morning's headlines did that, and tomorrow's headlines will too. And there are, of course, many responses to suffering. Some people choose to hide their heads in the sand. Others bury it over with busyness or hide behind it with any number of terrible things. And I learned back when I was a hospital chaplain that there is no right way to respond to pain. I used to sit with patients and families, many of whom were often in extraordinary pain. And I would listen to some of those families and they would rage and scream while other people would just quietly submit to pain's presence. And I think both of those responses and everything in between are valid and true. But there also existed a kind of person who even in pain could dig into some unknown well in their soul and somehow they could muster up the power to continue trading in life. Here's an example. I remember a woman I got to know who was a patient in the hospital, and she was in the throes of pain from chemotherapy. And so she called a chaplain over to pray over her body. And so I prayed with her. And just as I turned to walk out the door, she reached out and she grabbed my hand and she said, wait a second, don't leave before I can pray for you. Consider the power dynamic for a minute. Me standing upright in a tie, wearing a nice official badge, wearing all my own clothes. Her in a borrowed backless gown, lying in a borrowed bed. But all these power dynamics just disappeared when she prayed blessings on me. Now, I wouldn't tell you this story if it weren't true. And I'd be lying if I didn't tell you that it happened more than once. I don't really know what to say other than to tell you that in my life, I have met people who seem to trade in the substance of life. They turn passion into a transaction that affords bail from the prison of our selfhood into life's great landscape. In seminary, I had an Old Testament professor who liked to say that learning isn't just about teaching. What he liked to say is that learning is about meeting. 
He believed that everything he taught only mattered once we moved that learning into an encounter with another living soul. He'd say that it's one thing to read in 1 John that God is love or that love in Buddhism ranges from the sensual to the benevolent, but that no human can know an ounce of love until another person, by purpose or by accident, reaches them in word or deed and touches their heart in some small or significant way. In other words, what he was trying to say is that we come into ourselves by giving ourselves. A child is born into you, and somehow you end up loving the tiny creature so much that along the way you become a mother or a father. A woman or a man stumbles into your life and somehow over coffee and arguments and ups and downs you end up loving your way into being a husband or a wife or a partner. We stumble our way into a church and we hear something or we see something or we sing, sing something and it pulls us out of whatever shell we've constructed around our hearts that gives us the strength to pick up a hammer and start swinging. I watched a documentary a while back that said that the very way human beings walk is nothing more than one subtle stumble after another. I also read that 73.6% of facts and statistics are made up on the spot. It's Bloomberg. Whether it's true or not, it doesn't change the fact that on some level, all of us are just stumbling along. But the gift of our faith reminds us that our ways are not God's ways, which means love and belonging and justice and righteousness exist alongside the junk and the suffering. And out there in the world, there are people and churches that call us out of it and into a life which with we feel brave enough to start putting away the junk and living like humans at last. Amen. You're welcome to rise in spirit or body and join in our closing hymn, Let There Be Peace on Earth. It's an insert in your program.
you came here this morning with someone, I invite you to take their hand. If you're here alone, I invite you to reach out with your heart. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear may it lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. I invite you to relax and enjoy the postlude. I'll see you shortly. <laughs>